We are again in the middle of chapter 25. We're on page six, and we were in the middle of exploring our unbelievable potential in connecting to Hashem and to reaching that deep reserve within us at any time or moment. And we have to realize what incredible power we have within ourselves. And we're examining how to tap into the deepest space within ourselves in order to never forget our mission, never forget our core self. And while at times it feels so difficult, it's actually the truest, most authentic way of being. Think about it, if you decide to eat healthy, right? And then you have some temptations pulling you somewhere else. And then you resist the temptation. Who are you being true to? You're being true to your deepest self. You're doing what works best for you at your deepest, deepest space. And we're trying to arrive at this deep awareness of who we are as a person. Who are we essentially? We are somebody, a Jewish person is somebody who never wants to be separated from Hashem, not even temporarily, and not even at the pains of death. Jewish people, when they were put to the test of faith, saying give up Hashem or die, they just died. And these are people who weren't even religious all their life. But at that moment of truth, they tapped into this transcendent space within themselves and they died. They gave up their life because they did not want to betray their deepest space within themselves. We want to be cognizant that we have this incredible reserve within ourselves. We don't want to lose sight of it. There's a joke about a man who goes to a, an art gallery and he says, looking at these fine paintings, he looks at the curator and says, oh, this is the famous art gallery? Oh, these are the famous paintings? I don't see anything in them. And the curator looks at him and says, well, don't you wish you did? You can look at a soul and say, what is special about a soul? If you don't know, don't you wish you did? That's what we're doing now. We're tapping into this deep space to understand what a soul is. So we said that a Jew on the pains of death would give up his life so as not to become separated from Hashem for even for a moment. Now let's tap into that reserve within ourselves and say, Idol worship separates a Jew from Hashem? Well, guess what? It's not just idol worship. Any sin separates a Jew from Hashem. Just like idol worship does for that moment. So think about it. I don't want to be separated from Hashem for a moment. The only reason why a Jew would ever separate himself from Hashem for a moment is because of the spirit of insanity. Because he's been overcome with insanity, thinking that this sin does not separate him from Hashem. But he can reach beyond this insanity. He can move through the fog and realize Idol worship removes him from Hashem, separates him from Hashem. Well, just this, this sin. And he would be going through the pains of death so as not to separate from Hashem even for a moment. Well, subduing temptation is much lighter suffering than death. He should be willing to endure the suffering of resisting temptation so as not to separate from Hashem even for a moment. So that was as far as not separating from Hashem. But what about to intensify the relationship? What about to augment what about to deepen? Of course, if you're willing to endure pain so as not to separate from Hashem, wouldn't you be willing to endure a little bit of extra hardship and effort so as to intensify your relationship with Him? And so this is where we got up to last time, that a Jew is willing to go through the extra mile to do beyond his comfort level so as to intensify and augment his relationship with Hashem. Now. When he does that, there's an advantage to that over just not separating from him. In the first section, we were saying that he is going through pain 
so as not to separate. That's just not to lose what he already has. But when he intensifies, two things are here. First of all, he reaches a higher level of attachment than he already had. Remember we said every Jew intrinsically is already attached to Hashem. Each of us has an Hashemah. That's a part of Hashem already. But when a person does a mitzvah, they unite with Hashem, and Hashem is infinite. So we reach a deeper level of attachment to Him. So by going the extra mile, A, you reach a, a higher level of attachment with Him, and B, this attachment, like we're going to see right here, right now, this attachment lasts forever. Okay, the bottom of page six. V'yichot zel l'mayla hu nitzchi l'aylam va'ed. Okay, I actually get the chills whenever I say these lines because the Rebbe said these lines so many times. And this is like the crux of everything. In the upper spheres, this union between the soul and Hashem is eternal. For Hashem, blessed be He, and His will transcend time. And thus the union with Hashem and His will also transcends time and is eternal. Let's say a Jew does a sin that carries the penalty of excision or death at the hands of heaven. Let's say a Jew does a sin that his soul will get cut off. At that moment, the decision is eternal. But let's say he, he actually worshiped idols. Now he incurred the penalty of kares, that his soul gets cut off. And at that moment, it seems that it's eternal. However, he can go and do teshuva. And if he does teshuva, it goes and uproots the sin from its inception, and the sin no longer exists. The separation is annulled. But let's contrast that with a mitzvah. A mitzvah, when a person does a mitzvah, this is eternal, and it is always eternal. It will never get uprooted. The sin, even though at the time it seemed like it was eternal, through teshuva, it could be uprooted. But a mitzvah, once it's done, you have reached the eternal, and that never gets erased. That is forever and ever. It lasts forever. This connection is forever. Hashem transcends time. His will transcends time. The unification of our soul with Hashem also transcends time. We can't say that once the soul has united with Hashem, at one point it ceases to be. There's no such thing. In the space of eternity, nothing ceases to be. And when a person does a mitzvah, even just one time, and even for just a brief moment, the fusion that he created at that moment lasts forever. He reaches into the space that transcends time, and it lasts forever. Now, we're going to get a little philosophical over here. To say that Hashem transcends time is not just, you know, he lives forever. Like Deva HaMelech writes in Tehillim, Tamu. You are he, and your years never end. Or we say in Adon Olam, without beginning, without end. That he exists forever. It's not transcending time doesn't just mean he exists forever. It means he transcends all limitations, including the limitation of time. And because he transcends the limitation of time, therefore he is forever. You see, it's different. It's not just that he lasts forever. He transcends time, and being transcending time, then practically speaking, he is forever. It's hard for us to understand this because we exist in the realm of time. But something of an example for this could be a rule of logic. Two plus two is four. This rule of logic, unlike things that have physical form, don't get older. It doesn't change. 
it transcends time. Of course, it doesn't actually transcend time because it exists within our realm of time. But just for us to understand, the fact that Hashem transcends time is not just that He doesn't get old. He inherently transcends time, and therefore, anytime we connect with Him, we're reaching into this transcendent space, and the fusion that we create in that space is forever. I want to tell you an amazing story. There's a man, his name was Rabbi Mendel Vechter. He grew, really? Unbelievable. He grew up in a Hasidic community that had a different ideology than Chabad. And at that point in time, it was very difficult, to put it mildly. People from that community did not want any of their members to have anything to do with Chabad. Now, it came to be that he started to learn Hasidus with literally the foremost Hasidic teacher of our time, Rabbi Yoel Khan. Shlita, may he live and be well, many long, healthy, happy years. And his rule was, I will learn Tanya with you. I will learn Hasidus with you, but I don't, he does not want to hear anything that the Rebbe said. He didn't want to hear anything that the Rebbe said, only what the Alter Rebbe said. And that was their rule. But as they learned Tanya, there are certain things that are hard to explain without coming on to the teachings of the Rebbe. The Rebbe explained so much about Tanya. So he would tell him what the Rebbe said without telling him who said it. And then at one point he said, you know, I want you to tell, to tell you who actually explains it this way. It's the Rebbe. And so, of course, he couldn't help himself. He wanted to meet the Rebbe. And he used to go to the Rebbe's Fabregans. But it was actually dangerous for him. And so he had to hide during the Fabregan. He couldn't be out in the public. He would hide in the broadcast room where there was like a little hole and he could see the Farbringen from there. So one time he was going to go to a Farbringen, but before the Farbringen he had a meeting with a Dayan, like a rabbinical judge of the Hasidic community there. And he was about to leave and the Dayan said to him, wait here for me a moment, I owe you change, 14 cents. Change, 14 cents. He made a face like, who cares about 14 cents? And so he said to him, why do you make like 14 cents is insignificant? With 14 cents, you know what you could do? With 14 cents, you can betroth 14 women. Okay. <laughs> he goes. He goes to the Rebbe's Farbringen. He's sitting in that room where nobody sees him. And in the middle of the Farbringen, the Rebbe seems to say something that's not relevant. He says, a man could be walking down the street and find 14 cents. And he would think, of what value and significance is 14 cents? 14 cents is so important. 14 cents means 14 times tzedakah. And that means 14 connections to Atmos Ainsof Baruch Hu, the very essence of Hashem. With these 14 chances of doing a mitzvah, you can form 14 eternal fusions with Hashem. Unbelievable. Okay, so we understand that Hashem transcends time. We understand His will transcends time. But we also learned previously in chapter 4, quoting the, from the introduction to Tikkun Zohar, that that no thought can apprehend Hashem. Hashem completely transcends wisdom. Like Eev said, Will you by searching find Hashem? Hashem is unfathomable. So how do we have anything of his will, the Torah being his will and wisdom? How are we able to understand his will? Because Hashem contracted his will and wisdom, so to speak, within the Torah through the divine level called speech. Just look at your own speech. The way you relate to other people is through your speech. It's through contracting who you are intellectually and emotionally and putting it through your speech. That is a level of contraction. So too, Hashem took his infinite will and wisdom and he contracted it so that we can relate to it in this limited space 
through his speech, which is the Torah. So you can say, okay, Hashem is forever, his will is forever, but what about his will, will that we know in this world? What about his Torah and his mitzvahs? They've become contracted for us to relate to them. Maybe when we do Torah, when we study Torah, or when we do a mitzvah, maybe we're not making the eternal connection because it's already been contracted. So this is what the author of addresses now. Not only does the union with Hashem and His will transcend time as eternal, so too, even in this world, His revealed will, as expressed in His word, the Torah, is also eternal. As it is written, but the word of Hashem shall stand forever. And his words live and endure eternally. And he will never alter or change his law. Since the revelation of Hashem's will, as expressed in the Torah, is beyond time, the union of the soul with Hashem, that Torah and mitzvah's effect, is likewise eternal. So while although the Torah has indeed been contracted for us to relate to it, nothing of its essential infinity has been altered. He's quoting here from the words of the blessing after Shema. He's quoting from the Yigdal hymn. This is a hymn that was based on the 13th principle of faith of the Rambam. Okay, so in these words, we're referring to the word of Hashem. The word of Hashem being the Torah. The word of Hashem being a revelation to us that has been contracted. And yet, even though it has been contracted to suit our vessels so that we can relate to it, nothing of its infinity has been diminished. It's exactly the same essence of his will and wisdom as it has transcended time, as it has transcended space, so that we can relate to it. The only thing that's different, or that seems to be different, is we don't perceive its infinity. It's just all there, and we don't perceive it. Since the revelation of Hashem's will as expressed in Torah is beyond time, the union of the soul with Hashem, that Torah and Mitzvah's effect is likewise eternal. Here below, however, this union is within the limits of time. For in this world, the soul is under the dominion of time, and the soul is united with Hashem only while it is engaged in Torah study or, or in the performance of the Mitzvah. So, if we have touched the divine, if we have created this fusion with the eternal that is eternal, how come we're not infused with eternity? And that's, we are, but that's because our soul exists on two levels. On one hand, there's the root of his, our soul as it transcends time and space. And that fusion in that space is forever. But then there's the part of the soul that's below within our physical body. That part of the soul that's below within our physical body is subject to the confines of time and space. And so, we don't feel this fusion if something has come to disrupt the fusion. It's there, but the soul as it is already in the body is no longer a vessel to feel this fusion if something has come to interrupt the fusion. For if he engages afterwards in anything else, he becomes separated here below from this supernal union. That is, if he occupies himself with absolutely unnecessary matters that are in no way useful to the service of Hashem. So the fusion is happening. Every time a person studies Torah, every time a person does a mitzvah, 
they have contact with a divine will and wisdom. Not only do they have contact, but there's a total fusion that happens between their soul and Hashem. This fusion is eternal. It lasts forever. It never ever goes away. But we don't always sense it. If a person does something to contradict the fusion, then although his soul is still fused with Hashem in this eternal fusion, within his body, the soul does not perceive it anymore. It feels separate. And I'm going to tell you a story from the Talmud about the daughter of Acher. I've mentioned Acher before. Who is Acher? Acher is Elisha ben Abuya. Of the more than a thousand sages of the Talmud, he is the one that has become a heretic. He was a contemporary of Rabbi Akiva and the teacher of Rabbi Meir. A very, very bitter, tragic life. And he, he, there's different reasons why he became a heretic. Some people say that he was attracted to Greek culture. He always regretted it. He carried it in his heart and he felt like he couldn't do teshiva. Now about Acher, it said that he didn't have a portion in the world to come. One day, the daughter of Acher comes to Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, and he says, she says, Rabbi, Parnasani, Rabbi, give me sustenance. She needed food. And he asked her, Basmi'at, whose daughter are you? And she said, she is the daughter of Acher. And he said, really? Does any of his descendants still exist? Doesn't Eev say, not even, no, no child or grandchild will be, or great-grandchild will be of this person? A person like Acher still has a descendant in this world? What did Acher do? He became a heretic. He, he was a great sage, and he left it. And he, for somebody of his caliber to go and then turn his back on Hashem, going so far as to ride a horse behind the holy temple on Yom Kippur. His student, Rabbi Meir, never left him. And he always had in his heart that he will do teshuva. And he wanted to do teshuva. After, after Acher already left the path, everybody left him, besides for Rabbi Meir. And one time they were walking together, and it was on Shabbos. Acher is riding a horse, which he's not allowed to do on Shabbos, based on a rabbinic prohibition. And Rabbi Meir is walking alongside him, and Acher is teaching him Torah on Shabbos. At a certain point, Acher turns to Rabbi Meir and says, Chazor go back. I was counting with the gallops of my horse. We reached Tuchom Shabbos. We reached the place where you're not allowed to go further than this on Shabbos. You see what a conflicted soul he was, right? So Meir turns to his teacher and says to him, you chazar b'cha, you go back, you do teshuva. And he said, oh no, no, for me it's too late. Because I was riding my horse behind the Kodesh HaKadoshim on Yom Kippur. And I heard a voice saying, shuvu banim shovavim, return O wayward children, chutz mi acher, except for acher. Acher misinterpreted the voice because what the voice was saying was, Everybody, you, you two, return, return to me. But you are not Acher. Acher was the nickname he was given, the other one. You're really Elisha ben Avuya. Throw away the Acher and you return to me. But he so deeply identified with his self that he has become, his fake self, that he thought it was talking to him. It wasn't talking to him. It was talking to his facade that he put on. He was talking about his fake self that he put on. So this was Acher, this conflicted soul. And so... When his daughter heard Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi say, really, does he have any living descendant in this world? 
She said to him, Rabbi, don't look at his actions. Look at his Torah. And you know what happened? A fire came from heaven and singed the bench that Rabbi Huda Hanasi was sitting on. And Rabbi cried. And he said, if this is the way, the honor of somebody who disregarded the Torah while he studied it is treated, how much more so is somebody who actually gives honor to the Torah when he studies? So we have to see that this is somebody who is as far away as Acher, and yet his honor was protected by a fire from heaven singeing the bench because the fusion that he created with Hashem lasts forever. That never goes away. I'm going to tell you another story, and then I want to explore this idea further. There's a story of the Hasidic Rebbe, the Chidushi Harim. And he was once given a carriage ride by a Moskil, a Jew of the Enlightenment. Those Jews who felt like Judaism has, Judaism has to become more progressive, so they left traditional Judaism, and they were trying to get people to stop keeping traditional Judaism and go on to a more enlightened path. And he's driving this Hasidic Rebbe, and he says, Rebbe, so what has become of the promise of the Torah? Doesn't it say that somebody who doesn't keep the Torah properly, the heavens won't give their rain, the earth won't give its produce, and look at me. I have experienced such wealth and prominence, and he doesn't keep the Torah. So you know what the Chidush Harim said to him? Rabbi Yitzchak Meir turned to him and he said, from what your question that you're asking me, it's apparent that you have read the Shema at least once in your life. You should know that all of the goodness in this world is not enough to reward you for the one time that you have said Shema. As for your punishment, as for the sins that you have done, that is subject to a different reckoning, and you will be called for that too. And this is an important principle in Judaism. We have to understand that mitzvahs and averas, good deeds and transgressions, are not like pluses and minuses. They don't cancel each other out. They exist on two separate planes. Every single time a Jew does a mitzvah, he forges a union with his soul with Hashem, and that lasts forever. Nothing will ever, ever take that away from him. That's why the Rebbe encouraged Jews to do mitzvah. You say, get a Jew to do a mitzvah, but he's never going to do a mitzvah again. And the mitzvah that he does is just going to be this one time. It doesn't matter. This one mitzvah that he does, no matter how brief it is, forges a union of the soul with Hashem, and that fusion lasts forever. Nothing will ever, ever disrupt that fusion. It's reached beyond time and space to create a fusion with this eternal and Hashem lasts forever, His will lasts forever, and anything that fuses with Him lasts forever. When the soul reaches up and fuses with Hashem, that will never go away. And we have to remember that mitzvahs and averas are on two separate accountings. Sure, at the time of the ultimate judgment, it's taken into accounting and the person is giving ultimate judgment. But this is something that the Rambam explains. The Rambam says this in two different letters. He addresses people who underwent forced conversion or false conversion. And one of these is the Eger Teiman. And there's another letter also called Maimar Kedesh Hashem. And he says, you should know that if a person is forced to do some major averas, let's say they're going out now and they're being Machal Shabbos. Remember, people are not aware of it. Being, desecrating Shabbos is one of those very serious averas. So let's say he's desecrating Shabbos. He's doing a very serious desecration. And then he comes home. Let's say he cooked on Shabbos, OK? He comes home and he says, okay, he already cooked on Shabbos. So should he really be careful not to move Muktzah? Should he be careful not to move the pen? Because who is he fooling? He already did a major desecration. Should he be careful now with a minor desecration? 
every single act carries its own weight. Just because he did a major desecration, it doesn't mean that now he shouldn't be careful with a minor desecration. He's not a hypocrite. Every single act carries its own weight. The Ramam says, You should know that Yeravam ben Yeravam was the first king of the kingdom of Israel. Remember that it was first, all the Jewish people were united under King David and King Solomon. Then came Yeravam ben and he took 10 of the tribes with him. So then there was the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. Yeravam ben had very strong temptations because he didn't want the Jewish people to leave him and be with the king of Judah. And the te- temple was where the king of Judah would get to sit. The king of Israel would not be allowed to sit there. So he was afraid that if the king of Judah gets the honor in the temple, and so even the people from his kingdom are going where the king of Judah gets the honor, they might leave him. So what did he do? He set up two golden calves. And he got the people, he incited the people to worship idols. So this is what makes him so bad was not just that he worshiped idols, he got the masses to worship idols. It says about him that he was He sinned and he got the masses to sin. This is a sinner of the highest caliber, right? It's not that he just does sins himself, but he encourages the public to sin. So the Rambam says, you should know, he calls him may his bones be ground to dust. Okay? is going to be called to reckoning not just for setting up two golden calves, but even for failing to sit in a sukkah, on sukkahs, and even for failing to, to do the heir of Tafshilin, which is a rabbinic ordinance enacted by King Solomon. He's going to be called not just for his major sins, but for his minor sins. Now you can look at the words of the Rambam, and you can say, oh my gosh, this is very, very serious. He's getting called to action for every single thing, little thing that he did. No, no, we have to read deeper into the words of the Rambam. The Rambam is saying, that every Jewish person is in a relationship with Hashem. There's no leaving this relationship. Hashem loves us, and we can never separate from Him. But God forbid a couple gets divorced. So the husband is 3 o'clock in the morning, he's still not back at his place. And his ex-wife calls him and says, Where are you now? What do you mean, where am I now? <coughs> That's it, the relationship is over. Why are you asking, where am I now? Yeravam ben he set up two golden calves, right? He encouraged the people to separate from Hashem, to serve idols. And Hashem says, where are you, Yerevam? Why aren't you sitting in the sukkah? Why aren't you doing Erev Tashilin? He wants everything that Yerevam can give him. Whatever little bit of relationship that he could get from Yerevam, that's what Hashem wants from Yerevam. Mitzvahs, Averas, each act has its own weight. There's something intrinsically special and significant about every single act that we do. And so, there, and so therefore, when a person does a mitzvah, that act lasts forever. A person does an avera, actually it does carry eternal weight, except that it could be uh, uprooted from its inception by teshuva. Now, does even Hashem, though... Does Hashem need our mitzvah, or we need Hashem? I mean... So that, that's a very um, philosophical question. And the answer is yes, I know. No, Hashem doesn't need anything from us. The fact that He gives us mitzvahs is for us. On the other hand, once Hashem decided to enter a relationship with us and to make mitzvahs important to Him, at that point He decided that these are important to me. So yes, at that level, He needs our mitzvahs. Does He need anything? Hashem is perfect. He doesn't need anything. But Hashem has put Himself in a space, in a relationship with us that He says, I want your mitzvahs and therefore they're important to me and I need them. Like to give you back. 
the best? Like Hashem needs our mitzvot to treat us, basically? Hashem needs our mitzvot because he said, this is what I want. Why? He doesn't need his, our mitzvot. Intrinsically, he does not need our mitzvot. But Hashem chose to enter a relationship with us. And because he entered in a relationship with us, at this point, he, as if, needs our mitzvot. Now, mitzvahs are not just about reward and punishment. It's not so that we do a mitzvah, and so now we get rewarded. A person does an avera, and now they get punished. That's at a very basic level. On a deeper level, that's what we're studying right here in these chapters. What is a mitzvah? A mitzvah is an eternal fusion with the divine. That's what a mitzvah is. That's the ultimate reward, is being able to fuse with Hashem in an eternal fusion. An avera... And Avera is a separation from Hashem. It's ripping the person's soul away from Hashem at that point. That already is the greatest punishment. Like we spoke about when we spoke about punishment and hell. We're like, hell? Hell is already the cure. That's already the remediating process. That's already the stitches. The worst part was that the person cut their limb off. That they have to go, the surgery, that's already the remediating process. The worst part of the sin is the sin itself. The fact that during the time of the sin, the person's soul has been ripped away from Hashem. Okay, so, just to recap what we said until now. Doing, going beyond our comfort zone and doing a mitzvah has two advantages over simply not becoming separated from Hashem. When a person doesn't transgress, when a person doesn't serve idols, what, what are they doing? They're preserving the connection of the soul with Hashem. When a person does a mitzvah, when a person goes the extra mile, it's not just that they're keeping the connection intact. They are now deepening their connection. They're augmenting what they already have. And they're creating a, a fusion that is eternal. This eternal fusion never ever goes away. But the question is, as our soul is enclosed within a body, within the confines of time and space, does our soul feel it? Well, only as long as we haven't disrupted it. If we disrupt it, although the fusion is there, our soul as it is invested in our body now, can't feel it. Nevertheless, when he repents and resumes his service of Hashem through Torah study or prayer, and he asks forgiveness of Hashem for not having studied Torah at the time of his occupation in vain matters when he could have done so, Hashem forgives him. As our sages have said, if one neglected to perform a positive precept and he repented, he is pardoned forthwith and is thus reunited even here below with Hashem and his will. So there are different categories of sin. There is, if somebody neglected to do a positive mitzvah, then immediately after he asks Hashem for teshuva, he's forgiven. Forgiven. At that moment, it says, He doesn't move and he's already forgiven. The second that he asks for forgiveness for neglecting a positive mitzvah, he is forgiven. There's three categories. So the first one is if somebody neglects to do a positive mitzvah, as soon as he asks for forgiveness, he's forgiven. What if a person violates a prohibition, a laisasa, a standard prohibition? He asks, he does teshuva. Teshuva suspends any punishment. And Yom Kippur is mechaper. The day of Yom Kippur atones. We don't even realize the power of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a day where the essence of our soul is revealed. So a person does teshuva. Teshuva holds back any 
punishment, and Yom Kippur atones, does the complete atonement. And then if somebody does a very severe sin, which carries the penalty of death or excision, then Teshuva suspends the sin, Yom Kippur suspends the sin, and Yisurin Mimarkin. That means suffering cleanses the soul. So now we're talking about just a standard missing a mitzvah. For example, if a person neglects to study Torah when they should have been studying Torah, when they had free time to study Torah. Now, the mitzvah to study Torah at every free moment is really a time-bound mitzvah, and therefore this is not a mitzvah that is incumbent upon women. Rabbi Steinsaltz, in his elucidation to the Tanya, when he comments on these words that he could have studied Torah, he, all, he says, or also, he could have reached higher in his service of Hashem. So even somebody who does not have a mitzvah to study Torah, but if he had an opportunity to reach higher to Hashem and he didn't, this is a certain form of neglect of worship. For this reason, meaning, because such a request for forgiveness is immediately effective in reuniting the soul to Hashem, so that it will not be parted from him, him even momentarily, the sages ordain that the blessing beginning forgive us, in which we beg forgiveness for the sin of neglecting the study of Torah, be recited as often as three times daily, since no one escapes the sin evil, even a single day. So we have three prayers a day. Our sages tell us that tefillah keneged temidin tiknun, that the prayers were established corresponding to the carbon tamid the daily sacrifice. There was the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. The reason that we have three prayers a day is because there were two daily sacrifices. There was the morning daily sacrifice and that was to atone for the sins committed during the night. There was the afternoon daily sacrifice and that was to atone for the sins committed during the day. There is still a third prayer and that's the evening prayer. And the sages instituted that because if there wasn't enough time to burn the sacrifice during the day, it could burn all night. So three prayers for the two carbon tamids and for also allowing the sacrifice to burn during the night. These sacrifices atoned for neglect of positive commands. If somebody was supposed to do a positive miss and they didn't do it, this sacrifice atoned for that. To atone for a sin where a person actually violated a transgression, they have to bring a different sacrifice, and that was a carbon chatas, a sin offering. Now, I understand why we have to pray to Hashem three times a day. Prayer is something so that we ask for our needs. But why are we asking Hashem for forgiveness three times a day? A whole day long, say, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us. Why? Because there are certain sins that are so difficult to escape that our sages say about them, no man escapes them any day, every day. And one of these sins are neglecting Torah study. To study Torah every free moment is very, very difficult. It's possible. But it's very, very difficult that every time a person has a free moment that they can go and study Torah, people are neglectful of that all the time. So that's why we ask for forgiveness so many times a day because we don't want to interrupt the new level of fusion that we have, our soul with Hashem. Remember that we said that if a person does a sin, during the time of sin, their soul is completely separated from Hashem. For most sins, besides those ones that carry the penalty of excision or death at the hands of heaven, this separation only lasts during the sin. As soon as the sin is over, their soul once again is refreshed, comes closer to the holiness of the divine soul, and is once again not separated from Hashem. But 
isn't there some kind of a scarring happening? There is a scarring, and for that they have to do teshuva. But they're not separated anymore. At that point, they're back together with Hashem. There has been scarring, and for that they have to do teshuva. But there's no separation. So if a person is going to go the extra mile to prevent separation from Hashem, how, not how much more so, but also, a person's going to go the extra mile to prevent separation from Hashem. They're also going to go the extra mile not to lose the sensation of the new level of depth that they re- reached in the relationship. Think about a marriage. Okay, let's say a couple has a wonderful marriage and they're totally committed to each other. Of course, they would never want to risk separation. But what about they're in a great relationship and they've reached a new level of depth and connection in their relationship? That too they don't want to lose. They don't want to say, well, they're married, they're together, they're not separated, that's good enough. No, no, but they reach a new level of depth. Who wants to lose, lose that new level of depth? At a subtle level, this is a certain level of separation. So the reason why our Chachamim instituted that three times a day we beg for forgiveness is because it's so easy to neglect Torah study that by neglecting Torah study, we now no longer sense the new fusion that happens. The fusion is there, but our soul, as it is invested in the body, is no longer sensed. And so in order to rejuvenate the sensation of closeness again, they said, ask for forgiveness three times a day so that immediately we're forgiven. And then we can once again feel this new connection that we have with Hashem. Excuse me. In this, this felt and sounded so negative to me when I heard a remark said by someone you know, I don't remember the, whatever, that there's so many people that they go daven, they wear tzitzes, the black hat, the payas, very religious, you know, and, and go to shul three <coughs> times a day. <clears throat> Out in the world, in the business world, they're constantly cheating. They feel that because they can go back and keep davening and doing the mitzvahs and connecting to Hashem, that clears them. Did you ever hear? It's I heard so people, hard for me to I say that. I heard people say that. And guess what? Me, but what makes a person religious is not just the clothes they wear. The clothes is an no, external level. No, but they're level. acting. They're going to shul and acting, doing the mitzvahs and everything, you know. So they're doing the mitzvahs and they're doing averas. Yeah. So, so the same as anybody else who's doing a mitzvah and doing an avera. And there's no such thing. Remember, we're going to discuss it coming up about saying, I will sit. We already discussed it, but we're going to discuss it coming up again. A person can't say, oh, I'm going to sit and do teshuva. Remember? Well, that's what they accuse that's, that's, people that's of. Not, that's not Jewish thinking. That's not right. Right. So, listen. I can only answer for myself. You know? Everybody has their own calculation that they make. Any calculation that they make is nonsense. That's what we talked about. Nobody ever does a sin unless they're cloudy thinking, unless they are totally overcome by insanity. Because every single sin, no matter which one, separates a person from Hashem. There's no such thing as, oh, I'm going to sin into teshuva because there's a problem with that. And that is that teshuva is not so easy for them afterwards. And we discussed this last class, remember? But, but we're, I was going to say, but how does Hashem look at that? Does Hashem look at, uh, they're, you know, they're doing negatives, wrong, the sins, and everything, but then they're doing such, the other hand, they're going to shul three times, they're practicing as much as they can in the halacha. Right, but so, how does Hashem view that? So do you remember, were you here when we said previously in class, because I, I don't know at what point you came, but we talked about the Rambam saying that every act carries its own weight. 
But yes, I know that. So that's it. They shouldn't say, well, they did. They sinned. It's, they cheated in business, so now they're not going to go to Shul and Dabba. Are you saying No. That? There's no such thing as that. Do what you can. I'm sorry that you failed. Okay. But, but every sh- single act is inherently important. How does Hashem judge? He is How does a- Hashem accept that? Does Hashem accept that great, you know, Whatever does, bit of relationship Hashem accepts. Whatever bit of no, relationship no, no, no. Hashem accepts. Mm-hmm. But then there is the general accounting. <laughs> it's very complicated. Yeah. So, what, has, you know. What do you mean general account? Like what? At the end of the day, there's everything taken in the balance. Okay. There's a general accounting. At the end of the day, are they a tzaddik or are they a rasha? Right. <laughs> but a person should never say, oh, I did this bad thing, so now I'm not going to do a good thing. Every bit of relationship that we, that we give to Hashem, Hashem wants. No, I was saying the opposite, though. The people are saying, oh, they can go ahead, cheat, do business deals and that, because they're going to go anybody to Shul and Davin. No, anybody, I don't know you that people actually say that, because if people actually say that, they are ignorant. They're an Amharetz. They're not somebody who's considered, like, you know, they, they're lacking a certain basic knowledge of Judaism. It's not... It's, it's incorrect thinking. It's totally out of line with right. Judaism. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll be to you. Is over sin caused by insanity? Every sin is caused by insanity. Every single sin is caused by insanity. That's what Rish Lakish says. He says, A man, a person never commits a sin unless he's been overcome by insanity. And what is his insanity? There's insanity on two levels. The insanity is he forgets that essentially at his core, he loves Hashem. That's who he is. His essence is a person who loves Hashem. So much does he love Hashem that he would die not to relinquish his relationship with Hashem. So the first thing is he forgets that even that's his core. He forgets about his core. And the other kind of insanity that he has is he thinks... Ah, this little thing doesn't separate me from Hashem. You know, it's just a little something. It's not really anything special. This doesn't cause a separation. He's thinking that a little thing doesn't separate him from Hashem. He doesn't realize that that's insanity. Every single thing that Hashem said don't do rips him apart from Hashem at that moment. I want to tell you, the Baal Shem Tov says, that the archangel Michael, the greatest of the angels, would give up all of his service for Hashem, all of his knowledge of Hashem for one strand of tzitzis. Because his service of Hashem, his understanding of Hashem, comes through Seder Heshtalshalas, the chain-like descent of the order of the worlds, which is limited. He gets it from Eilam HaBriya, the world of Bria, and that's already confined. But tzitzis, which is a mitzvah, this comes from the aspect of, as it says in Daniel, the hair of his head is like clean wool. And this is an aspect uh, that transcends all of Seder Hishtalshalas, all of the order of the worlds, and all of the life force of the worlds comes from it. This is infinite. So while the archangel Michael, his understanding of Hashem and his service of Hashem is very deep, but it comes from a limited level. And the one mitzvah that we do comes from eternity. It transcends anything that he could reach. He would give up everything in order to reach that. And the Baal Shem Tov says further that even if a person knows that he sinned and he's gonna, he deserves Gehenna, okay? So let's say he knows that he sins and he deserves going to Gehenna because of his sin. 
the pleasure of one hour in, in the lower Gan Eden is worth it for the suffering in Gehenna. How much more so the pleasure in the upper Gan Eden, and how much more so the connection with infinity. So even though he thinks that he will be, have to punish, be punished, and he's going to have to go through suffering of Gehenna, he should know that the connection that he makes with Hashem just through one mitzvah surpasses all of that, and it's all worth it. And Michael, the great angel, will give up everything just for one strand of tzitzis. So just to understand that even if someone sinned, it doesn't take away from his mitzvah. It's two separate accountings. And a person should never say, they already sinned, so it's too late, they shouldn't do a mitzvah. No, every single mitzvah carries weight of its own. Okay. This blessing is like the daily burnt offering sacrificed in the holy temple that atoned for neglect of the positive precepts. Yet, it may be argued. Does anybody have a question? Remember what we learned last time? <coughs> Since this sin is repeated constantly, begging forgiveness for it is similar to saying, I will sin and repent, I will sin and repent. Our sages said that in such a case, Hashem does not grant the sinner the opportunity to repent. Why should, then should the request beginning with forgive us be effective in the case of neglecting Torah study? Okay, we said, we're asking for forgiveness three times a day. Please forgive me for neglecting Torah study. Please forgive me for neglecting Torah study. Didn't we say that somebody who says, I will sin and repent, I will sin and repent, is not granted the opportunity to do teshuva? And I want to remind you what we said last week, that when we said he's not granted the opportunity to do teshuva, does not mean that he cannot do teshuva. Everybody can do teshuva. The worst sinner can do teshuva. And if he does teshuva, he is accepted with open arms like a full-fledged Baal teshuva. But it means that he's not given special aid or assistance in doing teshuva. So if a person says, I will sin and repent, I will sin and repent, he's not given a special opportunity to do teshuva. So why are our Chachanim saying, say three times a day, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us, three times a day for, for neglecting Torah study? So the altar says like this. This is not the same as saying, I will sin and repent, sin and repent. Unless at the very time when one commits the sin, he relies on subsequent repentance and, and sins because of it, as explained elsewhere. Since he perverted the idea of repentance by using it as an excuse for sinning, he is not given the opportunity to practice it. However, in our case of the oft-repeated sin of neglecting to study Torah, the offender does not rely on teshuva at the time of the sin, and he is therefore granted the opportunity to ask for forgiveness thrice daily in the blessing of forgiveness. The reason why a person is not given the opportunity to do teshuva if he says, I will sin and repent, and I will sin and repent, is because we have a principle. Aim kategor sanegor. The accuser cannot become the defender. What caused him to do the sin? That's right. What caused the person to do the sin that he knew that he can do teshuva afterwards? Teshuva, it was caused him to sin. If teshuva is what caused him to sin, how can teshuva now become the defender and take away the sin from him? So, therefore, because he relied on the sin, on, because he relied on teshuva while doing the sin, teshuva can't help him now. Of course, if he presses forward and does teshuva, this is a different level of teshuva. Right. If a person presses forward and does teshuva, it's not the same teshuva that they relied on when they sinned. This is a whole new level of teshuva, and this teshuva can cause repentance for him. 
But this is only when they sinned because of the opportunity to do teshuva. The reason why the person is constantly sinning when it comes to neglect of Torah study is because it's so hard not to. It's not because he's knowingly sinning and saying, oh, I'm going to do teshuva for this afterwards. It's very hard not to do it. This is not relying on teshuva. It's just he constantly stumbles because he can't help himself. But it's not because he relies on teshuva that he keeps sinning in this regard. So I'm going to wrap up what we said until now, and then I'm going to open for questions. So... We said that a person would go the extra mile and endure great effort and toil, intensifying their relationship with Hashem. Here, a person would endure the pains of death so as not to separate from Hashem. How much is it worth it to go through extra effort, to go through extra toil in order to intensify their relationship with Hashem? Intensifying our relationship with Hashem has an advantage over just not separating from Him. Just not separating from him preserves the relationship that we already have. But going the extra mile and intensifying our relationship with Hashem adds in two ways. First of all, a new fusion is created with Hashem. And not just this, the new fusion created, but this etern- fusion that we create with Hashem is eternal. It lasts forever. So it's worth it to go the extra mile to create this eternal fusion that lasts forever. Now, although this fusion lasts forever, the soul, as it is invested within our body, which is confined to time and space, does not feel it anymore once a person goes on to do other things. If they neglect Torah study, if they do something that opposes the connection with Hashem, it's no longer a vessel to feel this union with Hashem. So how do we once again feel the union with Hashem? By asking for forgiveness. If a person neglects Torah study, they ask for forgiveness. The sages knew that this is a sin that's easily done because it's so hard to avoid. So in the prayer, they instituted, say forgive us three times a day. Why should we say forgive us three times a day? Because we want to feel the fusion that we have with Hashem. We want to feel the new depth of relationship that we have with Him. We reach a new level of connection and understanding between us. We don't want to lose it. We want to keep it. So in order to do that, they said, you know what? Three times a day, you ask for forgiveness. And when you do that, as soon as you ask for teshuva for neglecting a positive command, automatically Hashem forgives you, and once again, you feel the new depth of relationship that you have achieved previously by Torah study and Mitzvah performance. So that's where we got up until now, opening for questions.